Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 31st, 2020. This is episode 2702. TikTok, TikTok, another month is gone. When we come back, it will be August, and I will officially be another year older. So the clock is ticking for me like it ticks for everybody else. I know there's a pandemic out there. I know there's all kinds of disruption in your life, but... It is more important now than ever to have that once-in-a-while gut check that we have about the ticking clock. If you are not working to further liberty, independence, and freedom in your life, then life is moving you in reverse. There is no static in this world. You're either moving forward or backward. Because time, by moving forward itself, when you do nothing, you move backward. See how that works? It's real simple, isn't it? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and tell you what we're going to talk about today. It is time on Friday, Friday, Friday for an expert counsel Q&A show. I've got Derek Bonpietro today from Affordable DC Generators. He is going to talk about windshield wiper gremlins and dealing with fuel that may have been stored the wrong way for too long. Or is that even the problem? We'll find out when Derek talks to us. Dr. Ken Berry, author of Lies My Doctor Told Me, is going to have thoughts for you today on a diet for people who have had a gallbladder removal surgery. Uh, Doc Bones, uh, to Doc's back-to-back here, are going to talk to us about the treatment um, and prevention and dangers of heat injury. Uh, battery-powered weed eaters and pressure washers coming to you from Tim the Toolman Cook today. And then dro- diving into homeschooling when you're a full-time employed individual, Mike and Sula Preece. And I am going to kind of... Put out my last thing on, on HCQ, hydroxychloroquine, uh, COVID, etc. for a while. I wrote something today because I thought it would be more effective than a video. It would be easier for people to pass around. I've been begging somebody to debate me. And if not me, then I'll find somebody for you to debate. I will find an MD, a PhD, maybe somebody with both, who takes basically my position on the safety and effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. And I would like to see a debate. And I don't mean two people yelling at each other. I mean a well-organized, moderated debate on a live stream, which we have with just about anything in medicine or science or philosophy. When people disagree, you bring in informed people and have debates. This 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 call for a debate has been going on one way or another since March, and it's it's remained unanswered. I've put it down on paper in a way that I think either. It makes my point when it goes unanswered, or it will be answered. And I'm going to ask you for your help in making sure as many people as possible see this um, this challenge. And I'll, so I'll read it to you, and then I'll give you a link in the notes, and you can forward it to anybody and everybody, and especially members of the media, and especially people who claim to be professionals that know better than you, and especially people who claim they know professionals who know better than you. And especially people that claim, I know seven ER doctors, etc., All of them. All of the above. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's start out with a quote today. My good friend Mark sent me an email with a bunch of quotes in it. And he said, number 13 is one to really look at. It's from Ben Franklin. So I looked it up. And I love the quote, first of all. Out of the gate, I love the quote. I thought it was perfect for today as soon as I saw it. But uh, when I... Whenever I quote somebody with so much misattribution in the world, I, I look to see if it really was, because there's a picture of Ben Franklin on it. Apparently not. So this uh, this quote 
has been basically MF'd by uh, the left. I, for some reason, they particular take uh, 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 they don't like it um, because it actually wasn't said by Ben Franklin. So I've just attributed it to no one and put it down as unknown because I don't think just because Ben Franklin didn't say it doesn't mean it isn't absolutely fundamentally true and perfect for today. This this quote, wherever it came from, was, We're all born ignorant, but one, more, one must work hard to remain stupid. And the picture that I made for it is a guy with his head shoved deep into the sand. And I feel like that's the word that we live in today. When something conflicts with our confirmation bias, when something has been politicized and, and, and is counter to what we want to be true, even when it doesn't make any sense that we don't want it to be true, we'll bury our head in the sand figuratively and damn near literally, to avoid examining whether or not we're wrong. Now, there is a difference between ignorance and stupidity. And I think that when you go to the level of willful ignorance, you're crossing the line from ignorant, which means you just don't know yet, to stupid because you've chosen it. Up till this point, I've kind of made a difference between those three worlds. Ignorance... Willful ignorance, stupidity. I think the world of stupidity and willful ignorance are starting to merge. And I, th I think it's very dangerous, and I'll save my thoughts on that for my segment later today. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Derek Bonpietro on windshield wiper gremlins. That's what I'm calling it. And long-stored fuel. Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a twofer for this Friday show. First one up is from John. Let's get into it. John writes, how do I get my windshield wipers to stop? Got a Ford F-150 2016 model. All of a sudden, the wipers won't turn off. What should I do? Well, John, I got a couple of suggestions for you. First one up, which is the easiest, don't drive the truck unless it's raining. Second one, this truck is definitely on the newer end. I would probably reach out to a Ford dealership just to see if it has any kind of warranty on it, whether that's a factory one that's going to cover this, or perhaps maybe it has a third-party one that's going to go to like 100,000 miles or, or five years. So I would check the warranty on this. Second, third, I'd probably replace this myself, most likely going to be the multifunction switch. If you look online for the F-150, I guess this is a very, very common problem with the wipers acting up or the turn signals. And these two functions are part of the multifunction switch. So it's just one unit in the steering column that has that stock that performs all of that function. That's probably going to be the first place I start. It doesn't seem like the wiper motor itself is usually the, the, the fault for this. Not a hard job. Part seems to be about $40 to $60. The labor to do it does not seem to require removing the steering wheel to get at that. So basically... You're going to shift the column up and down so you can access some of the trim pieces that go on it. You're going to remove those trims, and then you're going to get into there, and you're going to have to turn the wheel to get some of the screws. But overall, it looks like a fairly easy do-it-yourselfer job. Um, I've read that some dealers are charging like $250 to $300 to do this. I don't know if I'd spend that kind of money to do such a simple task, but if you're comfortable, get in there, maybe replace it yourself. Uh, so I'd tackle it myself. Now, since this is a very electronic vehicle, you know, th this is a common problem with that multifunction switch. Older vehicles usually have a switch inside of the wiper motor itself. So when the wipers are up and you decide to turn the wiper switch to the off position, there's actually a circuit in the wiper motor that remains closed, keeping the wipers moving. 
until it comes into the retracted or park position, as they refer to at the bottom of the windscreen. When the wiper reaches that position, those contacts open and shut the wiper motor off. So regardless of its position, if it's moving and you turn the wipers off, that switch moves the wipers back down and parks them. If you got a problem with that switch in the wiper motor, the wipers might either continuously move even in the off position if they're shorted, or if the switch contacts are broken and they're open, the uh, wipers will basically stop on the windscreen whenever you shut the wipers off. So that's a common problem on much older stuff, but I think yours is with the actual switch itself. So take a look at it, swap it out, save yourself some money. All right, next question up. Can gasoline go bad stored with Pry-G, which Pry-G is a uh, product name? Details. I have about 100 gallons of gasoline stored in 5-gallon plastic cans treated with Pry-G. This is in addition to the 5 or 6 cans I store, use, and regularly rotate. This was my zombie apocalypse gas storage. It is about four years old. Since prices are down now, I determined to replace it. I poured it all into my bulk storage tank. That tank previously held diesel fuel, but was pumped out. I suppose there could be a gallon left at the bottom. Now I filled up my 16-horse zero-turn mower with this gas. To start it using it in the spring, after only a couple of hours of mowing, the fuel filter is clogged to the point that I can't keep the mower running. The mower was brand new last spring and only has about 30 hours on it and was running fine when put away for the season. Any guess on what the real problem might be? Also, how might I best utilize this gasoline so it isn't a total loss? Is there a reasonable way to pre-filter it? All right, let's hammer this one piece at a time. So the Pry-G, you go on Amazon, it's got a lot of great reviews. seems like there's some useful feedback and that the product does work. Uh, there's one guy on there that says it brought back 21-year-old fuel. I call BS on that. Uh, you know, gasoline after about a year, year and a half really starts to go bad. And I don't care if you got additives in it or not. The fuel really isn't going to treat the engine. It's going in really well after that point. So even though it might work, it's not a good idea. And, and we've talked about this so many times on the show, myself and Jack. you got to rotate the fuel. So if you're using, you know, 100 gallons, that means you got to rotate all 100 gallons and not just a couple of the cans. So I get it, you know, gas is cheap, probably, you know, under two bucks. So you want to, you want to go through all of this and replenish. I get it. I'm not sure about the bulk storage tank, about what it is. You really didn't give any details. You know, is this like a home heating oil tank that's been refurbished that you're using, you know, as, as, as a bulk storage tank and, you know, you got it used and there's a bunch of rust in it? Or is this like a commercial grade tank that's like, you know, aluminum or stainless? Or is this like a big poly tote that you've got? You know, so I don't know much about that. You know, if it's not clean, if you're getting moisture contaminants or you're getting debris in that fuel, obviously, you know, that's going to cause some problems when you pump that gas out. The gallon of diesel on the bottom is probably not an issue if you're taking the fuel off the top, but if you're taking the fuel off the bottom, probably getting some diesel fuel in there. I think if it was mixed with that quantity of gasoline, probably not an issue, but depending on where you're drawing from, you might get a good chunk of that diesel fuel in some of those cans before it goes away. Now, for the mower, if the filter's clogged, it's probably due to debris. Those are small filters. It does take a lot of debris, but you know, if it plugged up, it's going to kill the engine and, and keep it from running. So swap the filter out, probably drain the fuel out of that tank. wouldn't hurt to get a flashlight and look at the bottom of that mower tank to make sure there is no debris in it. Uh, you might want to drain the carb or pull the bowl off of it and make sure we don't have any sediment in there either. I think once that's all done, get some fresh gas in it, you know, make sure there's no debris in the gas tank. I think it'll fire right up, no problem whatsoever. Now, what to do with that quantity of old fuel? And that's always, what do you do with it? If you live out in the middle of nowhere, probably convert it. 
you know, and again, this is like if you have a brain, you can burn it. Maybe you can burn it with some uh, waste motor oil or something. Or if you have garbage or something like that, a burning barrel. Again, I'm not telling anybody to pour gasoline on something and then light it with a match because I don't want you coming at me if you burn your eyebrows off. Uh, you know, again, if you're in the middle of nowhere, you can get rid of old fuel by burning it. Just, you know, use common sense. And uh, if you blow yourself up, please don't hold Jack or myself responsible. Um, you can get rid of it. A lot of the towns will take fuel, but they're going to charge you typically for it. So, you know, you might want to shop that around. Companies like Safety Clean will take that stuff. But again, you know, shop it because they might be super expensive compared to your town. You could try burning it in, in an engine. So if it still somewhat works, you can try running it in like a pressure washer or a generator. But most likely if it killed the mower, it's probably going to kill everything else too. So I'd say it's, it's most likely junk at that point. So, you know, that's one of those. Try burning it if, if you can, if you're smart enough and you're not going to hurt yourself. And you can do it in a controlled manner. Uh, with some other stuff you need to get rid of in a burn barrel. Again, most places won't let you do that. And if you live in a town, close residential area, that's not really an option. So I really think your your gasoline is probably a loss at this point. I don't know if it plugged the mower up. I don't know if I'd put it in anything else, especially a car or a truck. Uh, you can filter this. Now, you're not going to filter that fuel because it's already turned, but carrying from here on out, I would, on your bulk storage tank, probably do like an electric pump with a pump nozzle, like just like you have a gas station. But if you go on Northern Tool or, you know, uh, Harbor Freight, you can get those pump kits that would thread into the top of a tank. And you either can get a, you know, 110 volt AC or you can get a 12 volt DC pump, depending on where you're at. And you can pump this into your cans or your vehicles or your mower, just like you would at a gas station. And you can put a filter on that, you know, a spin-on filter. So you're going to protect whatever it's going into. You know, it sounds like handling the fuel between the cans and the bulk tank and then going into whatever it's going into, you're probably getting debris either from the tank or just, you know, flipping it from one one container to another. So I would probably just go with a bulk storage tank and eliminate the cans. And if it's 100 gallons, maybe pump 30, 40, 50 gallons out of it over time. And then at that point, when it's half full, get it filled back up again. And I would probably eliminate the cans and just keep the bulk storage tank if it's clean. So that's my recommendation. Hope that works for you. Affordable DC generators, always in business. We've got generators in stock. If you got a battery bank, anything DC powered, and you need a inexpensive way of keeping it charged or running, check out the affordable DC generators. Take care, guys. Next up, uh, Dr. Ken Berry on, on, on dealing with a diet and specifically dealing with being overweight and having had gallbladder removal surgery. This is a new one to me. I'm really not sure how to answer this, and that's why it's good that I have experts that can. Hello, Jack and intelligent listeners. This is Dr. Ken Berry, a family physician. I'm answering a question today for John. Uh, John had his gallbladder removed, and he's currently five foot eleven inches and weighs three hundred and fifty pounds. And he's also a very picky eater, which he's been all his life. And so we're going to talk about all these things and help John take charge of his health, probably for the first time in his life. So first of all, John, you are hyperinsulinemic, and insulin is a fat storage hormone. So you have got to use your diet to get your insulin level back down to low normal levels. Even if you're not a diabetic, I guarantee you if you get your C-peptide check, that's a, a blood test, it's going to be really high, and that's a proxy marker for your hyperinsulinemia. So you're 100% a candidate for either a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet. Uh, if, if, if there are meats that you like, given your, your 350 pounds, you need to start to get that down as quickly as possible because that's very, very dangerous for you. 
So if, if you can pick a list of five or ten fatty meats that you really like, like ribeye, ribs, uh, 70, 30 ground beef, that needs to be the majority of your diet. Hopefully you like eggs, and so you can eat as many eggs as you want as well. But you've got to cut the carbs, the carbohydrates. That's what's keeping your insulin level high and preventing you from getting rid of about 150 pounds of the weight that you're carrying that's just stored fat. Now, when you start a keto or carnivore diet, since you don't have a gallbladder, you're probably going to have some diarrhea because of the increased fat that you'll be eating. It's not dangerous. It's completely safe. It's fine. It's going to be short-term because what will happen is even though you don't have a gallbladder to store bile in anymore, your bile ducts in your liver will actually dilate over a few weeks or a few months' time, and you'll they'll actually develop a storage capacity since you've lost your gallbladder. Some people for the first few weeks on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet without a gallbladder, they have to use something called an ox bile supplement, which is basically the bile uh, from ox or, or cows, and that will help you break down and digest the fat until your bile ducts can dilate and start to perform that uh, storage capacity once again. Now, uh, and so anybody without a gallbladder does great with keto or carnivore. They just have to keep in mind for a week or three, they may have some diarrhea, which is not dangerous short term and will go away. Now let's talk about the picky eater part. I know, John, that you're concerned about your ability, having control of your world, and being prepared for the future. And at 350 pounds, you have to understand you're very unprepared for any disaster or emergency that may happen. You've got to get over this picky eater thing. And and the first thing I'd recommend is just understanding and realizing food should not be pleasure, which I I suspect it currently is for you. Food, Food is fuel to fuel your body, but it's also building material to build and rebuild your body. That's what food is. So you've got to break this relationship with food that it's it's somehow it it's your it's a pleasure for you. I suspect that eating is probably the biggest pleasure you have most days and that's not sustainable and it's not healthy and it's also not conducive to being prepared for the future. I would recommend that you start trying to do a daily fast somewhere between 12 and 16 hours long, so that when you break that fast, you are truly physiologically hungry. You're not just bored. You're not under stress. You're not just looking for that dopamine rush that that comes from eating crap food. You're truly physiologically hungry. And for a lot of picky eaters, I find that this helps them to expand their palate because when if you just imagine if I locked you in my barn for 72 hours and didn't feed you anything but water, when you got out of my barn, you would eat any damn thing I handed you because you would be starving, right? And so you've got to hack that that normal physiological process of hunger. You've got to hack that so that you can start to eat more foods. And since you're uh, a grown man, you also have to realize that reality is reality. So you're going to have to say, hey, I don't care if I like uh, beef liver or, or not, chicken liver or not. I'm going to eat it because it is it is brilliant for my health, and it also won't spike my insulin. So at least once a week, I would introduce a new food that you know to be keto carnivore friendly, that you know you've heard lots of people talk about being healthy. And I don't care if you like it or not, you need to eat it. Put some butter on it, put some garlic on it, put some some onion salt on it, I, whatever you got to do to wolf it down. Because I promise, as you go down this keto carnivore road, your palate is going to mature. You're going to start to like taste that you never thought you'd like and you're going to start to recognize flavors 
that previously your palate was blunted to. You couldn't eat. Yeah, I suspect right now that your favorite flavors are chicken nuggets and ketchup. But that can change. You can actually learn to like liver and learn to like fatty cuts of meat. But it's going to take time and it's going to take some effort on your part. I hope this helps you, John, and maybe a few other listeners as well. Thanks a lot for having me, Jack. I'll talk to you guys next time. So I I have to say I haven't thought about this since I started my keto diet in the first couple months of it, that Dr. Barry hit on something there. I obviously have a gallbladder. It's just not, you know, germane to me that way but he said something about the middle of his segment about food and pleasure and i do enjoy a good meal and i still do but i never understood how much it had become a part of my life from a standpoint of enjoyment and i'm see, i'm not suggesting i don't think ken's suggesting either we shouldn't enjoy our food but it shouldn't be an outlet of pleasure like the thing that gives us meaning in our life and as much as i love to cook And as much as I love food, I, I don't think I realized how much that had become the case for me. And when I realized it was when I started eating less. When I was full bore on keto for loss. And I was doing two meals a day. And I was only doing them, you know, six to eight hours apart. So I was most days I was on like an 18-6 cycle. So I mean, I went 18 hours without eating. And I want to be clear about something. Once I adapted to the diet... I was never hungry. I was never hungry. But what I did is I went out and I bought all kinds of good shit that was keto-friendly. Nuts, cheeses, meats, sausage. You know, I, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, one thing I'm going to do for myself is I'm going to make sure there's never a time that I'm like, man, I need to eat something and there's nothing that will fit the macros so I'll go in and then just, well, just today I'll eat this bag of potato chips. Like, I was going to make sure that wasn't going to happen. And I started looking at this food in my refrigerator, not getting eaten. You know, I went out and bought like three tubs, little tubs, but three tubs of like blue cheese for my salad. And I was weighing my blue cheese so that I didn't eat too much. And, you know, blue cheese pretty much lasts forever. It's got mold in it. That's what it is. But it was like... Man, that's, that blue cheese has been around a long time. And I look in the cheese drawer and all the different cheeses, and so many of them hadn't even been opened yet. And, and the sausages, and it, you get me around a piece of dry sausage, buddy. It's, but I started realizing that I was regretting not eating food even though I wasn't hungry for it. And that's something I haven't actually ever talked to you all about. And it's something I haven't really thought about because I broke it. And I think it's important when you break something that affects other people. That you don't just pretend it didn't happen. That you you come out and you say, hey, I, it's like you know, eating anonymous or something, you know, alcoholics anonymous or whatever. And the things that actually were controlling you. And I'm telling you that Ken hit it so perfectly. And it, I wasn't a person who my whole life revolved around eating. It was the only pleasurable thing in my life or whatever. It wasn't anything like that. I enjoyed and loved my life, but I realized how much of it was food centric. And that even when I wasn't hungry and even when everything was working, I almost had this. This feeling of loss, that I'd lost something, that there's this food and I'm not eating it. It's insane. But when I tell you it's an addiction, that carbohydrates and, and processed food and chemicals in our food are addictive substances, and the people that make it know that, and they know if we had a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that, and we get the fat-sugar ratio just right, that every time somebody eats a serving of this, they'll eat an ounce more. 
And when you multiply that by a billion bags, it's billions of dollars. When I tell you that, there can't be something that shows you it's more true than this. And God, I don't like to be preachy about stuff like this. But I know, I mean, I see pictures of y'all and what have you. There's a lot of you out there that are where I was a year ago. It is not an easy journey when you begin. But every step on it will get easier. It will only take you about a month to really get through the hard part, to get through the keto flu, if you're going to have it, to get to the point where you're not depressed, to come to have these come-to-Jesus moments with it. Um, and by the second month, it's a ball rolling down a hill gathering mass, except you're shedding mass. And by the third month, you'll wonder why you ever did anything any different for the rest of your life. If you found some truth in this about food being your pleasure and about being regretful when you don't get to eat more things, even when you don't need to, I'm telling you, this can save your life, and I won't say another word about it today. Let's go on to something else. Um, let's talk about another serious issue that can save your life by being aware of it and being prepared for it, and that's heat injuries. Doc Bones, take it away. Hey, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Also, the best-selling books, The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, and an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Summer is here with a vengeance, and parts of the Midwest and Southern U.S. are, man, they are experiencing record high temperatures in major heat waves. This year, places as far north as Buffalo, New York, hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit for a week straight, while Phoenix, Arizona, had multiple days in the 110s. Wow. And the air temperature in Death Valley, California, reached as high as 128 degrees. Even in places where the air temperature isn't as high, the heat index is surpassing the 90s, 100s, and 110s. The heat index, if you don't know, is a measure of the effects of air temperature combined with high humidity. Above 60% relative humidity, loss of heat by perspiration is impaired, and that increases the chance of heat-related emergencies such as heat stroke and heat exhaustion. Things are even worse in urban areas. Buildings and roads replace open land and vegetation, and what happens is the concrete and asphalt surfaces in the sun become much hotter than air temperature, resulting in what we call a heat island in large populated areas. Rural areas are generally more moist and cooler. Another factor may increase the risk of heat-related emergencies in 2020. Homes in brownout areas will not only become sweat boxes, but many people cooped up in closed environments because of COVID-19. That is also going to give us a lot of cases, especially in older folks, of heat stroke and heat exhaustion. So much for the summer giving us a break from the pandemic. Well, you might not consider a heat wave to be a natural disaster, but it most certainly is. Heat waves can cause mass casualties, as it did in Europe, when tens of thousands died of exposure, now not in the Middle Ages, but in the year 2003. India, Pakistan, and a lot of other underdeveloped tropical countries experience thousands of heat-related deaths every year. So how exactly does heat kill a person? Your body core regulates its temperature for optimal organ function. When core body temperature rises excessively, known as hyperthermia, Inflammation occurs, cells die, and toxins leak. Fatalities can occur very quickly without rapid intervention. 
Even with modern technology, hyperthermia carries a 10% death rate, mostly, of course, in the elderly, the very young, and the infirm. Those who are physically fit, however, are not immune. The ill effects due to overheating are called heat exhaustion if they're mild to moderate, and if severe, these effects are referred to as heat stroke. Heat exhaustion usually does not result in permanent damage, but heat stroke does. Matter of fact, it can permanently disable or even kill its victim. It's a medical emergency that must be diagnosed and treated promptly. Simply having muscle cramps or a fainting spell doesn't necessarily signify an imminent heat-related medical emergency. You'll see heat cramps often in kids who have been running around on a hot day. Get them out of the sun, massage the affected muscles, and provide some hydration, and that usually resolves the problem. Heat exhaustion signs and symptoms include confusion, rapid pulse, very profuse sweating, flushing, nausea and vomiting, headache, and temperature elevations up to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. If no action is taken to cool the victim at this point, they can easily progress to heat stroke. In addition to all the possible signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion, heat stroke will manifest as a loss of consciousness, seizures, or even bleeding from unusual places. Breathing becomes rapid and shallow. Shock and organ malfunction may ensue, possibly leading to death in some cases. In heat stroke, the skin is likely to be red and hot to the touch, but is often dry. Sweating actually might be absent. Once the body core hits about 105 degrees or more, it varies from person to person, thermal regulation breaks down and the body's ability to use sweating as a natural temperature regulator fails. In heat stroke, the body core can rise to as much as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, the highest body temperature ever recorded was actually 115 degrees. On July 10, 1980, 52-year-old heat stroke victim Willie Jones of Atlanta was admitted to the hospital with a temperature of 115 degrees Fahrenheit. He spent 24 days in the hospital, but indeed fully recovered after that. In some circumstances, the victim's skin may actually seem cool. Now, that's actually clammy. Despite feeling clammy to the touch, it's important to realize that it's the body's core temperature that's elevated. You could be misled unless you're taking readings with the thermometer to reveal the patient's true status. When overheated victims are no longer able to cool themselves, it's up to their rescuers to do the job. If hyperthermia is suspected, the victim should immediately be removed from the heat source, for example, get them out of the sun, have their clothing removed, be drenched in cool water with ice if possible, have their legs elevated above the level of their heart, the shock position, be fanned or otherwise ventilated to help with heat evaporation, have moist cold compresses placed in the neck, armpit, and groin areas. Now, why those areas? Well, major blood vessels pass close to the skin in these areas, the neck, the armpit, and the groin, and cold packs will more efficiently cool the body core. Recent studies by the military suggest that cold packs to feet and hands are also helpful. Oral rehydration is useful to replace fluids lost, but only if the patient is fully awake and alert. If your patient has altered mental status, he or she might swallow the fluid into their airways. This is known as aspiration and causes significant damage to the lungs. Heat stroke is preventable in many cases. The Arizona Department of Health, they should know, recommends the following. Drink at least two liters, about a half a gallon of water per day, if you're mostly indoors, and one to two additional liters for every hour of outdoor time. Drink before you feel thirsty and avoid alcohol and caffeine. Wear lightweight, light-colored clothing and use a sun hat or an umbrella to deflect the sun's rays. Use sunscreen if it's available. Eat smaller, more frequent meals instead of large ones. 
Avoid strenuous activity, especially in midday hours. Stay indoors as much as you possibly can if you have air conditioning. And take regular breaks if you exert yourself on warm days. In a heat wave, it's important to check on the elderly, the very young, and the infirm regularly and often. These people have more difficulty seeking help, and you might just save a life if you're vigilant. You can bet there will be more than one heat wave this summer, so know the warning signs and how to help those people who develop heat-related emergencies. This is Joe Alton, D, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, fill those holes in your medical supplies by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, this is another thing that I have some personal experience with in a negative way. I was always the guy, like, everybody else would fall out in the heat, and I didn't. And it was it was, it was was the heat injury that kind of gave me a, a big, hello, you're killing yourself with the way you're living moment last year. Uh, I got very, very sick from exposure to heat um, and some other things. And it was, okay, you either are going to keep doing this until you're dead, or you can do something about it. And what I'll tell you is, even if you're the person that never thought that you would have the problem with it, no one's, you know, people say no one's immune to COVID. No, there's people immune to COVID. There's no one immune to heat injury. No one. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one on weed eaters uh, for your cordless tool sets and pressure washers for pressure washer, not cordless pressure washer. I'm not sure that's a thing. Uh, anyway, with that, Tim the Tool Man, take it away. Hey guys, it's Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Back to answer a couple of more questions for you. This first question comes from Barbecue Homesteader, and he asks, Do you have any recommendations for a battery-powered weed eater? Looking for an option that is much easier to start than a gas-powered weed eater. Typically, we have an hour or two of weed eating at a time, approximately two acres worth of trimming. They've been leaning toward the DeWalt battery-powered tools and wondering what you thought of the 60-volt versus the 20-volt models. So let me tell you, recently I was visiting my daughters in the city. I realized their backyard had become overgrown. Not horrible, but it needed some work. So it was my weekend away. I didn't have my tools with me. I thought, hey, let's use this as an excuse to go to Home Depot and buy the 20-volt weed trimmer that I had my eyes on. Uh, so I bought the kit. Wasn't much more than the bare tool, and I got a charger and a 5-amp-hour battery. Uh, that kit right now on Amazon is $219, uh, and if you're in the market for a handheld blower to add um, for cleaning up the grass later on, you can get that bundled for $259. This weed eater, I have fallen in love with it. If you're looking for a 20-volt option, make sure you get the second-generation model. You'll see the first-generation on clearance in a lot of places. They both have that fold-down shaft, but the first one is round. It has a really chintzy angle at what it uh, folds down at, and it flexes way too much. Plus, it has the traditional style head that you have to hand load. It doesn't have the new, extremely easy and slick uh, speed string loading head, which I love. So this one, uh, again, you know me. I'm a DeWalt fanboy. I am absolutely sure Milwaukee and Makita have a version that would work for you as well. But I'm going to tell you about what I've been using and how good it's worked for me. This has become my go-to weed eater. Even when we have our day where we do 11 lawns in a day, I use that one now. I pretty much just go through two fully charged 5 amp hour batteries. It has two power settings. I love the low powered setting because you can go right up against vinyl siding and not take a nick out of it. Uh, it folds down to nearly half its size. It says about 40%. It has a straight shaft that gets in under 
almost all the trees so much better than my curved uh, still one did. And, you know, it's fairly light and well-balanced, even with a 5-amp-hour battery on it. Only a couple little downsides that I found. It seems to constantly want to feed string out, so you're going through string about twice as quick. But I've been finding the more I get comfortable with it, you use it a little bit different than a gas one, and it's been slowing that down a fair bit. The other only small issue is when you put the battery in, the little three lights that you can click to see it, it buries itself on the inside, so you have to take the battery out to know... Uh, how much charge you have left. Not a big deal, but it is what it is. If you've got a lot more weeding to do or you're looking for a straight-up professional tool, seriously check out the 60-volt as well. It's got all the features of the 20-volt that I've been using, but it's built a little more rugged. It can take the higher-capacity flex-volt batteries, but it's also backwards compatible for the 20-volt. Uh, you can even get the 60-volt bare tool on Amazon right now for 200 bucks. To me, that's a no-brainer. Grab it. Use your old 20-volt batteries with it if you have it. Like I said, Milwaukee and Makita also have some options, but I have used this one and I love it. So if you're looking for something that's going to work great for you, check this guy out and let me know what you think. Can only throw in so much, but I have this week's uh, Tool Time Tool Review video is actually on this weed eater. So if you want to take some time, there's a 10-minute video, check it out, and you can figure out quite a bit more about it. So my second question this week comes from Jason Elliott uh, over in the YouTube comments. Uh, he's also a member of our TSP community, which you guys know. And he asks, uh, what should I look for in a pressure washer? It's going to be used for a side hustle, for pressure washing decks, driveways, a mobile car wash, etc. I'm not married to any particular brand of pressure washer. I've had success with multiple brands over the years. But what I have found you need to look for is the PSI rating the power source, i.e. gas or electric, and the engine type if you go with gas. So if you're looking at just washing your car on occasion, maybe doing a few windows at home, an electric might fit the bill for you. They're so underpowered and they burn out really quick for the most part, but there's lots of cheap ones out there if somebody's looking for that. But it seems like what you're looking for obviously is something much more heavy duty to make yourself some money, you know, to find that financial freedom through your side hustle. And no one has ever said when you buy a pressure washer, man, I wish I'd bought something less powered. So when you're looking for something, I've had um, 2,800 to 3,200 PSI. That seems to fall in the sweet spot of price versus power. So if you're looking for something that's going to do all of what you need, that's a really good power range to look for. Uh, as far as engines go, I've had great luck with Briggs & Stratton over the years. But the top recommended one that almost everybody talks about is if you can find a Honda engine. So, you know, I've had good luck with Briggs. Honda's great as well. Um, I would be way more concerned with the make of the engine than the name of the company that's stamped on the pressure washer itself. I took some time, went through Amazon. They got a large selection of not-so-well-known brands of gas pressure washers. But take your time, look through them. There's a lot that are really well-reviewed. The top-reviewed one, under 400 bucks is a Simpson brand. It's 3,200 PSI with a Honda engine. I'll send a link to Jack so you can check it out. Uh, one more tip to throw at you about pressure washers. Take some time, buy some Gilmore quick-release hose fittings, put one on the end of your hose, put the other one on the bottom of the pressure washer. It's going to save you a ton of swearing because they never put the hose connection in a convenient spot and you always have to struggle to get it on and get it off. This has saved me more time than I can even care to admit. So, guys, that's it for me this week. Thanks for getting me the questions. Keep them coming. Send them to Jack. And anything to do with tools, uh, gardening, 
landscaping, being a solopreneur, all of that. Check it out. Uh, if you have time and you're looking for some really cool gear reviews and tool review videos, I've got my uh, tool time review series going on Wednesdays. Uh, this month, I've got uh, my 3M Bluetooth noise-canceling headphones, really incredible Intex rechargeable pool vacuum. I got my DeWalt 7.25-inch battery-powered chop saw and a dual wireless freezer alarm that I'm reviewing this month. So if you want to know my thoughts on how good they are and whether they're a good product for you or not, pop over, check out the All Seasons Maintenance YouTube channel. And guys... Once again, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I do have links to all of the stuff that Tim was talking about in the show notes today for you, episode 2702. Uh, one more before we get to my segment today. This is from Mike and Sue LaPreeze about homeschooling as a full-time employee. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Jennifer, and she asked, How do I homeschool and work full-time? I have a 13-year-old and a 5-year-old at home. So I want to just say, welcome to homeschooling, and I believe you can do it. So we're going to talk about it today through the lens of the permaculture, and zone zero is in your brain. If you can decide, we're never going back, we're not reporting what our kids do to the state, My first recommendation for those parents, whether you work or not, is to get off of Pinterest. It's just going to make you want to spend money, and you're going to say, oh, my gosh, homeschooling is so expensive. And it's really not expensive and can be mostly done for free. So getting down to the fundamentals, and our pattern changes throughout the seasons of our homeschool depending on the abilities of our kids. And for a parent who's been working from home, your patterns can change. You might not do school from 8 to 3. You might do some at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So, for example, we have a son with auditory processing disorder, and when there's things like spelling, where I need him to actually hear what I'm saying without the interruption of three extra small people, we start school at 6.30 for him with certain subjects so I can get them out of the way before the little people get up. So, um, zone one is... Well, in permaculture, it's that which is closest to your house or your frequently traveled paths. And so I'd say zone one here uh, would be your daily flow. And it's basic things like chores, you know, cleaning your own room, your personal habits, right, brushing your teeth, you know, cleanliness, participating in family life, uh, cleaning, gardening, uh, cooking, uh, budgeting. Our kids work on that. Uh, what if there's a job loss, right? Is there uh, additional income that could be made? Uh, and helping with the homeschooling of the younger child. So the 13-year-old can certainly help the 5-year-old. And you can teach your kids certain things where they could manage 30 to 60 minutes on their own without any help from you. And if it's like when Michael was working from home, he could hop out every few minutes and say, hey, how's it going? And so there's some moments you can check in and take a little break from work Absolutely. for most people. So zone two, it's those foundational subjects. And this is really what you have to focus on as either a single parent working on homeschooling or if both parents are working on homeschooling. So you have math, reading, writing, and grammar. This is your daily, needs your daily attention. And that could include Saturday and Sunday if they didn't finish their work. So stop thinking of it as homework given to you from the school, but it, this is your kid's work that needs to get done. And you guys agree to that. You can come up with a plan and 
maybe Saturday and Sunday you do a little extra work on those basic subjects. Yeah, and those are the ones you want to get off the ground first. Right. So I think we think of those as your root crops. So Jack had a podcast, 2688, and he said, you've had 180 days of figuring it out. So just keep figuring it out. Keep changing until you find what works for your family. Okay. And we find that we need most help or some assistance usually early in the mornings or at lunchtime, right? Because then you're going through the lunch process and stuff. That's when there's more hands on deck. Right. So if you can teach a 13-year-old to make breakfast and lunch and then you do dinner, it'll free up a lot of your time. So then zone three is the occasionally visited seasonal things. And these will be a little bit harder for work full-time parents, but you can still do these on the weekends or in the evenings, and that's friends. Those are the vines that connect what you're learning at school together, and we recommend you find those friends before you go on to the extra subjects like history and science, and then you're going to do those together, and then your kid could Google Zoom or Duo, whatever, with their friends during the week, like, what are you doing for science? Here's the experiment. And you might have um, neighbors or grandparents, somebody who's willing to help come in and maybe take your child to an event, if we get to go to any events this year. And we use this for a little bit of competition, some deadlines, you know, working in those challenges for your kids. They're much more likely to get it done if there's a peer there that um, is going to go, what do you mean you didn't do your work? You're supposed to do half of this project. So those are some good things you st- we still do as homeschoolers that give incentive to our kids. Yeah, so that's where community comes in because you're intentionally selecting <clears throat> matching curriculum to do that type of work like, uh, and like that, physical science yeah. or history. You're going to try to match up your curriculum with somebody else as you're working through that. Right. And so we don't only match up with friends so that we can work together. I try to match up with my kids because, we, you know, if you know, our kids are 32 to 4. Maybe 33. I don't even know. He's 32. <laughs> <laughs> and so we match up our history. We do one history subject, and then you scale it for the different age groups. But then an older sibling can help a younger sibling. And school does this. It's called peer learning, and it's quite acceptable. But when they found out homeschoolers were doing this like 20 years ago, they were shocked and appalled. It's hilarious. So then the older kid, by helping the younger kid with a similar subject, like doing their geography that the older kid already did, it reinforces that in their mind by helping someone else. And those are good things. So then zone four is that wild woods, forest out there. This is all the additional subjects. And these are what would I would consider the delight-directed or unschooled portion of our homeschool, and that's art, foreign language, things that your kid has an interest in, which also frees you up from standing over their shoulder saying, this must be done. So our daughter works full-time, and she was living with us, but she's um, moved to Houston with another daughter. And so the daughter that doesn't work is doing phonics and math with the granddaughter. And then my daughter does like science and history on Sundays and Tuesday nights, And so they've worked out a deal that works for both of them, and they're both homeschooling our granddaughter. And we're very excited about that. Here we go. Okay, so... Zone 5 in permaculture is, you know, the natural areas. You're just leaving it somewhat unattended. You know, literally, for us, the natural area is literally take out and go on an adventure, right? Go outside, uh, field trips. 
which is, seems really hard right now trying to figure out, but you can do it. Yeah, so those field trips don't necessarily have to be to museums or to zoos or things like that. You can go out into nature, go to a state park or a national park. Or a friend who has country property, rivers, things like that. And we try to connect those with what we're doing for homeschool. Like, I'm super excited about physics and physical science this year because it lends itself to um, a lot of fun things in nature. So John Bush, he's on the Unloose the Goose podcast with Jack and Nicole and different people, and he talks about these freedom cells, and there's a, he's got a website, I think it's called freedomcells.org, where you're gathering intentionally with people and you're helping each other out. And so let's do that. Whether you work or not, find people that are in a similar life pattern as you or someone who's in a very different life pattern than you, and you guys can mutually help one another out. Yes, so get those things to take the place of government. Get yes. the community, get your community yes. to take the place of government. Okay, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that when designing the life you'd love to live, remember that you can do this because you already have. Back to you, Jack. Um, I, I'm just going to kind of add to all of this. This is a common objection. There's a, there's like about a dozen reasons people give for not being able to homeschool. And all I can say is every one of them, I can show you lots of people, not a person, lots of people who had the same concern or issue that figured a way out. So let's try this a little bit of a different way. If your child was going to be sent into a building that was on fire and it was inconvenient for you to prevent your child from going into that building, what would prevent you from stopping your child from being sent into a building that was engulfed in flames? And the answer is nothing. I, I can answer that for you or you shouldn't have kids. Now look, I'm not saying it's that bad. Metaphorically, it kind of is, but I'm not saying it's that bad. I'm just pointing something out that once you're sufficiently motivated to solve a problem, once you've accepted the depth of a problem as to what it is, you can figure out a way to solve it. And any conjecture to the, the, the opposite of that is just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. We always, once sufficiently motivated, We'll do whatever it takes, if it's in our ability at all, to solve a problem for ourselves and especially for our children. So whatever it is that's holding you back, there's a way to do it. And the fact is, what they mentioned, you know, you've had to figure out what to do with your kids at home for 180 plus days now. Okay, so whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. All right, now, let's go on to something totally different. I have been on this thing about wanting to be debated. Um, and I don't really necessarily personally want to be debated. I just feel that I have enough of a platform and enough of a commanding of uh, understanding of the facts to do a good job in a debate. That's all. I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world. I would like to do this debate, and I would love to get somebody who is, uh, you know, a, a very intellectual, credentialed individual to take what would be my side in this debate. And I'm going to present it both ways here in a second. But I think that it's important when you have a conflict of fact. You have experts, with air quotes around that term, on both sides of this argument about hydroxychloroquine. Is it safe and is it effective? They're two different things, and you'll hear that here in a second. And 
What we have is one comes on one news network and says pro, the other says con. They both say the other side's wrong, and you never see them speak to each other. This is not how we handle things in science and, and, and medicine. I don't think there's ever been a time in science and medicine where even when there was this kind of thing going on where it was completely to the point of there is no room for debate. And I think it's very dangerous. So I have an open challenge. What I'm going to ask you to do for me, whenever somebody tells you it doesn't work, I want you to give them this link. Whenever somebody tells you they are a medical professional and they know better than you and you shouldn't use it because there's no trials or whatever... I want you to give them this link. When anybody tells you they know people who know, I want you to give them this link. When anybody says, well, my husband is or my wife is, and that means that I'm smarter than you, I want you to give them this link. If you know somebody in the media, I want you to give them this link. Other podcasters all the way up to major media networks, politicians, lobby, I don't give a shit who. Anybody that you think might do anything positive with it or respond to it, I want you to give them the link. And, again, the link will be in the show notes. You just look up today's episode and you can find it. But, it's again, it's, it's called An Open Challenge to Debate Any Scientist or Doctor on the Merits of HCQ for the Treatment and Prevention of COVID. I'm going to read it verbatim, and then I'm going to wrap up. I'm not going to add a lot to it. I think it says everything. Again, this is all in print. I've made a bunch of videos about this. I've tried really hard to get something done with this. I've done it tacitly since March. I've been doing it in earnest for a couple of weeks now, and no one will step up and debate me or anyone in a, a formalized debate. So here it is. The open challenge. I've been trying to do this since March, and I have ramped it up hard in the last week. I've had no takers on this issue. I'm open to other points of debate, but specifically here are nine points of debate I want to have with any professional about hydroxychloroquine, hereafter referred to as HCQ in this article, as it relates to COVID and the prevention and treatment of it. Point one, HCQ is safe, and the claim that it should only be used in a hospital is a blatant lie. Point two, HCQ is a zinc ionophore, which means it gets zinc inside of human cells. This is known science. Point three, zinc in the human cell disrupts viral replication of mRNA replicating viruses, and this is known science. Four, no RCT, which is a randomized control trial, has included zinc as of 731.20. Number five, all negative RCTs to overdose patients and did not include zinc. Most were in late stages of the illness when the lungs were already severely damaged. Point six, there are multiple positive studies that counter the negative studies. Point seven, the existing studies are so flawed that it at least appears intentional, i.e. overdosing, late stage use, and the omission of critical component of care. Eight, there is ample evidence to support the use of HCQ for COVID treatment and prevention. Nine, doctors should not be banned from prescribing HCQ for any use they feel would be beneficial to a patient. The options. On full disclosure, I'm not a degree-holding professional. I admit this freely, and my position is that as such, if I am wrong, I should lose this debate and do so badly. However, so far, every medical and scientific professional who has said I am wrong has also refused to debate me. I'll say something like, quote, since I have no credentials, there is no point, end quote. Given I speak to and I'm trusted by about 250,000 people daily, I find this to amount to ad hominem and a denial of reality. However, this is not about me. This is about the truth, and I feel public and open, honest debate is important to science and medicine. Hence, any professional who is unwilling to debate my nine points only due to my lack of credentials is offered two options. One, use your superior knowledge to debate me anyway. This should make your job easy. Two, I will find you a PhD or MD to take my place in the debate. The format. 
I am not talking about a shouting match. I am not talking about a comment argument. I am talking about a well-ordered professional debate, an organized debate with a mutually agreed-upon independent moderator conducted in an online live video format. The terms will be agreed upon in advance. The subjects, time limits, response times, etc. The debate will be 100% professional and with courtesy extended to both sides at all times. Again, if my lack of credentials is an obstacle for you, I agree to simply facilitate this debate by finding you a professional with credentials or do this myself, either choice. The proposed advantage. If you should choose to debate me, I agree to do the following. If you wish, I will limit myself to only one page of pre-planned notes, one side of one sheet of paper. I will take notes during the debate as is customary, but will rely on only one side of one sheet of paper, of pa of sheet of paper for prepared notes. My opponent is permitted to have as many notes as he or she wishes to use. They may even look up data online during the debate and may have up to two assistants while engaged in the debate. I, however will stand alone. Additionally, beyond the allotted time, I agree to give my opponent 30 minutes of time to be invoked at any time other than to interrupt my time. This time may be used in increments of as little as one minute throughout the debate. Additionally, the primary positions I am taking can be heard in two videos, one here and the other here, both with links, giving you a chance to know the majority of my positions before engaging in the debate. Should you wish to debate a professional of my choosing instead of myself, I do not offer these contingencies. I will not put another person at such a disadvantage. I can only speak for myself on these contingencies. I don't know of an, any professional debate on a subject at this level where one party has offered so much of an advantage to the other side. Also, if you feel these contingencies are not necessary, you have the option to debate me without them. Basically, I will engage in this fight with one hand tied behind my back if that was what it takes to get someone, anyone, to step up and professionally defend these positions while being challenged on the facts. It is that important to me that this happen. Why I am doing this. This is not a publicity stunt. This is not about me. I feel claims are being made that are blatantly false, such as a claim that a drug used in millions of doses annually suddenly now needs to only be used in a hospital. This does not track logically. I find the shouting down of people challenging this to be a dangerous precedent to set in modern science and medicine. It invokes images of the dark ages. I feel no scientist or doctor comfort in their position should be afraid to debate it publicly, professionally, and rigorously. I have witnessed experts on both sides of this debate on television, but I have yet to see any two such experts in anything approaching a professional debate of the facts. I have searched far and wide. I, can find, I cannot find a single debate on this issue that was done in anything approaching a professional manner. I find this odd and frightening. Healthy, rigorous debate is the foundation of science and medicine. You can't resolve an issue of this magnitude that is this politically charged with TV talking heads. Professionals on either side should not be permitted to make unchallenged claims on something that's important. Since the media refuses to have professionals conduct this debate, I offer either to do it or to facilitate it. What the reader should ask at this point are two questions. One, why does a podcaster have to do this in the first place? Two, why won't a single professional making these claims publicly defend their position with the ability for it to be challenged by someone with a command of facts counter to their position? Support for my position. I have been saddened to see any doctor or scientist who speaks up on the pro side of this issue attacked, mocked, and become the subject of character assassination. However, I want to point to a professional that agrees with my positions. 
a man who is immune to such attacks. His name is Harvey Reich, MD, PhD. He is a professor and one of the most cited researchers, a professor at Yale University and one of the most cited researchers on the planet. In fact, his research has been cited 39,980 times in the research of other professionals. As a researcher, he has what is known as an H-index of 88. That makes him one of the most respected people on the subject of infectious disease research in the world. There's more on H-index here if you care to learn more about it. Link. Dr. Reich has been uh, in his professional... Uh, in, Dr. Reich has been in his profession for decades. He is not a political individual. He speaks 100% as a scientist on the issue. He is on record multiple times, such as here, here, and here, with links, stating HCQ is both effective and safe for use. I am not pointing to the opinion of Dr. Reich as proof that I am correct. I am simply stating that if a man at his level says this medication is safe and effective, it certainly warrants rigorous open debate before we permit the media to say it is not. How to contact me. Any party interested in my challenge can simply email me at jack at com. Please put TSPC in the subject line so you can be assured your email will not be filtered. Let me know your professional background and if you would prefer to debate me directly or prefer to debate another professional. Again, this is not about me. I very much feel this type of debate is important right now. If anyone is upset by this challenge, I have to ask why. When did it become okay in America to just shout down dissenting opinions? specifically in the world of science and medicine. I find this, again, to be disturbing and dangerous. If I'm wrong in my positions, I welcome well-reasoned, logical arguments about them so that I may correct them. A quarter million listeners a day are given my opinions. I strive to be accurate, as that is a significant responsibility. If something can be destroyed by the truth, it should be destroyed by the truth, not silenced by force. Jack Spirico. P.S. Please forward this article to any professional who's speaking against the use of HCQ or claims that the use is unsafe. Please forward this to any contacts you have in the media as well. I feel this is a public debate we need to have, and honestly, I'm shocked that there is even any opposition to such a debate occurring. If no one ever agrees to answer this challenge, which I have been over backwards to be as accommodated with as possible, the reader should ask themselves why. This is an instance where silence speaks volumes. And I don't know what else I can say. I don't know what else I can say. I'm willing to debate somebody at a complete disadvantage. I'm willing to get you somebody to debate if you don't think I am worthy of you. I constantly hear how wrong I am. But no one will step up and debate the facts with anybody who has a command of opposing facts. Have you seen a debate? That's what I'm asking you guys now. I'm off the, I'm off the article if you can't tell. Has anybody seen one? Like a real debate. You know, like where two guys stand at podiums or they're behind their monitor and they both are given time and they both present their facts and like a, a debate. And, and why would we not be able to have that debate? I have seen debates on whether or not God exists. If humanity can handle two intelligent people debating the existence of God, we can handle debating the, exist, the, 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 the safety and effectiveness of a medication we've had around for almost seven decades. We can handle it. The world won't end because we have this debate. Um, I'm not going to go into the quote because it's going to be Monday's quote of the day. But somebody just happened to send me this today, and I, I made it the image, a quote with this image, for the image for this article. It was by uh, Richard Feynman. He said one time, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. 
I feel that we're in a world today where we are being told those questions are not okay to ask. Shut up, put your mask on, and believe what you're told. In fact, there was an article out yesterday that said you, and it was from Forbes, why you must not do your own research when it comes to science and medicine. You are forbidden from doing your own research. According to Forbes, major publication, major media outlet, you should be forbidden from doing your own research when it comes to medicine and science. You should just listen to consensus as proof of something. One constant in science and medicine, consensus has been proven wrong over and over and over and over and over again. Anyway, my challenge is there. Please help me with it. Please, any, especially any of you guys that know people in media, I got it, but the number of people you out, out there, there's got to be somebody that knows somebody in some place that you can get this to. Uh, I don't, you know, I could leverage that all the time, and I don't. I, I, I really think this is that important. I, this, if you can't tell, I mean, I risked my profession this week by doing what I did with the band video. I, I seriously risked being deplatformed. De I risked my income. You don't do that unless you believe in something. This is a line in the sand for me. This is a line in the sand for me. I believe if, if, if this is permitted to go unchallenged, there is no longer any check, there is no matter, no more, no longer any limit to what they can do and what they can force on you. This is the place to fight. This is the line to draw in the sand now, this moment, today, now, to hither thou shalt come and no further. If you are going to make this claim, then by God, somebody have the balls, the gumption, and the intelligence, and the valid argument to stand up and debate a guy with no degree and no credentials. And if that's your excuse, I've taken your excuse away. You have no excuse. I will get you a PhD. I will get you an MD. I will get you somebody with both if you feel that is what is necessary to justify your highness stepping forward into this. Or me. And if you pick me, you get an assistant. You get a second assistant. You get all the notes you want. You get to actively have people Googling shit for you while we're debating. And you still won't do it. And that's why this is the line in the sand. Because I have never had an opportunity before to stand this strong. I've never had an opportunity before to lay something down like this. That anybody who looks at it for more than five seconds doesn't go, well, wait a minute. What? You're saying it. Well, go do it. Well, no, he's, he's, he's not important enough. It would just give him credibility. Well, then he'll get you a PhD. Well, blah, 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 blah. This is such a blatant lie. They won't stand. They won't stand for their own lie. They won't stand for their own lie. They won't even come on and lie about their lie. That first point ends it. Nobody with a brain is going to take this. HCQ is safe, and the claim that it should only be used in a hospital is a blatant lie. Do you want to take? I'll take just that, just that, one point. You want to debate just that? That the media every time the media says the word should only be used in a hospital, it's a lie. Any doctor, any doctor, want to explain to me why I'm wrong? Crickets. That's about as good as I can do with sound effects. Crickets. Well, it goes to the liver, so does everything else you consume. Not an answer. How do we have 67,000 doses used a day on an outpatient basis 
basis by VA alone if it should only be used in a hospital. Doesn't logically track, does it? But come on. And I'll tell you what, anybody who wants to do this debate, if they're like, well, I can see point one, okay, then we only need point one explained because the rest of everything that I have to say is contingent upon it. Then you need to concede it in the debate. We can pick and choose which ones we're actually going to debate. You can concede it and explain why it doesn't matter to my argument. That's a debate. It ain't happening, folks. It ain't happening. I don't care if this gets picked up by, like, Fox News or something. I'm telling you right now, it's not happening. No one's going to go on the record with this while being challenged. They won't do it. And the only reason that would be the case is if they already know that they're wrong. When you can't just shriek, there's a study that says you're wrong, and walk away and, 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 not, be, and, and not have to answer challenges on the, the amount, the quantity of dose. The methodology that was done, like what, like that's not how studies work. You don't just pick the ones you like and then say the other side's wrong. Anyway, I'll let it go. Let's wrap up. Let me remind you guys, you want to help us out? The work that we do, the important work like this, like drawing lines in the sand. Well, here's an easy way. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You'll see all the things I recommend uh, there. And today's item of the day is Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract. Um, this is something I use every day. I'm not going to say any more about it. You can read the write-up if you want to. I don't want the show to go any longer today than it has to. But this came to me from uh, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, they use it. I use it. It is, to me, one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest products I've ever found for natural health. Um, and the, the, the research that Amy put into this, remember, Amy is not, you know, like an LVN or something. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying, Amy's a nurse practitioner. This is, this is, you know, one step below doctor, and Doc Bones is a physician. Um, the research she put into this was extensive, and the the study that she sent me on um, the prevention of cytokine storm by these different mushroom groups and the um, anti-cancer properties of them was just, it was mind-blowing. And if you want to read that study, uh, it's long and it's deep, but if you want to read it, it's linked to you from the write-up as well. With that, let's go ahead and uh, uh, wrap things up for the day. Um, I do have a MSB sale going on right now for new members or members who are expired and want to renew. If you want to renew um, and, and get the, the discount price, I won't tell you why today. There's a video out on Facebook yesterday, but the discount code, code is Delta Force. One word, Delta Force. That will give you MSB for 25 bucks a year. Um, if you if you want to be a member. I'll tell you more about why and the funny story behind it next week. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. We were supposed to be continuing with Major Tom Week. It got interrupted due to the special show that I had to do uh, on Tuesday. Um, and, and I just kind of felt like... I feel like we're living in a world of lies right now. And I wanted a song about truth. And I wanted a song that was pretty. And I wanted a song that was really kind of pure and from the heart. Something completely counter to a lot of the crap we're dealing with right now. So I went to one of my favorite singer-songwriters in the well there to get a song. And I found a song that I was like, yeah, that's going to be perfect. Billy Joel, Honesty. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. If you search for tenderness It isn't hard to find You can have the love Just as well be blind It always seems to be so
Tell 